You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and this is a change. If you're following along with the liturgy, I last night I was working on the sermon and I felt like the Lord was uh, redirecting me to focus on a specific section of this scripture. So I was originally going to preach through the entirety of John 6, verses 16 through 34. But today I'm going to focus just on verses 16 through 21, and then I'll add verses 22 all the way through 51 to next week. And when you make changes like that, see, when, you, when, you, uh, when you're putting together a preaching plan, like I have done, so I've got all the Sundays laid out uh, in detail between now and July. I've got all the Sundays laid out in a general way from now until the end of this year, 2021. So you can't, you know, when you've got a preachers that you've assigned certain things, you can't be changing things around all the time. Jairus is preaching in a, in a, or Isaac's preaching in a couple weeks, and I want to make sure that, that I'm not changing the assignment that he's already been working on. He doesn't do this full time. He's, he's got a job family to take care of. So anyway, though, I really believe that the Spirit of God is with us as He always is, but I believe this Word is going to hit us in a way that's really going to be, I think, helpful to a lot of people. Joe went up to share a prophetic word, which was really encouraging to a lot of us, wasn't it? Gabe was tailing him up there with a sense that he had something on his heart for the Lord, but Joe beat him to it. He didn't beat him. He just got up there and we decided where we were in worship. We were just not going to take another prophetic word. So Gabe came to me standing here and said, hey, I didn't get a chance to share this, but I think it might be for you. The Lord wants you to know that this is on his heart for God's people today. He has no idea that I have modified the sermon text this morning, and shares with me two things, which I'm not going to tell you. And the reason why I'm not going to tell you is because they're the point of my sermon. So you're going to hear them. Two of them. He shared two things. I'm going to make four points. Two of them, he came up and said, the Lord wants people to know this. I don't know if that encourages you, but man, that encourages me. Maybe I made the right decision. Last Sunday was Easter. We talked about we worship God for the resurrection. And we spoke for a minute about how the resurrection is a miracle and how some people could struggle with that. Some people do struggle with the miracles that are contained within the Scriptures. We're back in the Gospel of John today. If you're following along, Isaac preached the last section in John. Do you remember what he preached? Do you remember what the section was, the theme of that section? Feeding of the 5,000, which is a, like the resurrection, miracle. Today, we're going to see another miracle. Jesus walks on water. Did he really? Yes. But let's hold up for just a second and let's just talk for a minute with those who might be struggling with the miraculous. The miracles of Scripture have been a stumbling block for many, including Christians. Like, you can't get away, if you read the Bible, you can't get away from miraculous, right? Can't get away from it. History tells that Thomas Jefferson, who loved reading the Bible, actually got a sharp, sharp knife, went into the Bible, and cut out every section that was supernatural. Just couldn't, just couldn't deal with that, couldn't believe that. He's not alone. 
critics of the Bible have come up with different interpretations to explain the miracles we find here. One scholar trying to, I read this last week, one scholar trying to understand the feeding of the 5,000 came up with a theory. He's a scholar, and pastors have done this. They stand up and they try to help their people by explaining away the miraculous. So this one scholar came up with this idea, that, that Jesus and the disciples, knowing that they were going to feed the 5,000, brought enough fish and bread, found a cave, stored it all in there, and then at the moment where they started to recognize the dilemma of feeding everyone, Jesus lined the disciples up, put one in the cave, and formed kind of a bucket brigade, and they just passed the bread and the fish out to 5,000 men, which means probably about 15,000 people. That's harder for me to believe than the miracle. R.C. Sproul says if that's what actually happened, that's the most prodigious magical act in the history of the world. This event, Jesus walking on water, has received its share of criticism too. People are hostile to this idea that it ever happened. And they point out, actually this is accurate, they point out that the phrase, which we're going to look at in a minute, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, that little preposition on the sea could be Trans, translated by the sea. That's true. It could be translated walking by the sea. So they suggest that when the disciples went out in their boat, they stayed close enough to the shore so that when Jesus was walking by the sea, they saw him there. And by doing that, they eliminate the need for us to believe the miracle that Jesus was actually walking on the sea, walking on the water. Context, friends, context always, always. You've got to read the Bible in context. Context always becomes the dominant criterion for which we interpret. Context is so important. If the disciples simply saw Jesus walking by the sea, then we need an explanation for why they were so extremely terrified. They were more frightened by Jesus than they were by the storm that we're going to read about. All of the synoptic gospel writers include this, John writes it, and John conceives of this as a miracle. And the rest of the disciples who write about it conceive of this. There can be no reasonable doubt that they portray this event as a miracle. C.S. Lewis, long quote, but he's great on the supernatural. Listen to what he says. Do not attempt to water Christianity down. Don't do that for your science-believing friends who might be struggling with the miraculous. Don't try to water it down. Don't try to make it believable. There, be, there must be no pretense that you can have Christianity with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must frankly argue for supernaturalism from the very outset. The Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, what is eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, the universe that he made, rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. Your salvation, our salvation, is one great miracle. You are here this morning. If you are in Christ, it is a great 
miracle. Christianity is one great miracle. If you take away that, if you take that away, there is nothing Christian left. Who's with me? John often refers to miracles as signs. Do you know why he does that? Why not just call him a miracle? Why call him a sign? What do signs do? When you approach the red, uh, the red, what do you call that? It's octagon. <laughs> when you approach the red octagon, it's a sign that, that tells you, it points to a danger. If you don't do something, you will head into oncoming traffic. It's a sign that directs you. It's a sign that points you. It's, there's a deeper reality at work in that intersection than just the physical sign, right? The physical object. Sign. The reason why John calls miracles signs is because signs point to deeper spiritual realities. The miracles are never just, oh, Jesus walked on water. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus walked on water, and that's a deep spiritual reality that, it, that God wants to teach his disciples something and therefore teach all of you and me something about what the spiritual significance is of the fact that Jesus miraculously, yes, did walk on water. Who's with me? Jesus intended for this miracle to teach the disciples deeper spiritual realities, and he intends to do the same for us. Do you want Jesus to teach you a deeper spiritual reality? Then we got to read the text and get to work. All right? So let's read the text. John, verse 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, so this is after the feeding of the 5,000. When evening came after that day, imagine what a day that was. But when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, which we talked about last week in the They went down to the sea, they got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. They're not going to walk around the sea, they're going to cut across. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Where was Jesus? We'll get to that in a second. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us. Help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it to our hearts. Help us to see Jesus and the comforting truths that this scripture has for each and every one of us. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, John is pretty sparse in his details on this event. If you read Matthew's account, if you read Mark's account, you'll get, di- you'll get some different flavor. You'll get different details. We're going to focus on John's account, but it can be helpful to know what the other accounts say as well. So you might ask, why did Jesus, why were they alone? Why did, where was Jesus? It says, It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Why did they leave Jesus on the other side? Why did that happen? Well, Matthew tells us that at the end of that day, Jesus sent them all so that he could stay and dismiss the crowd. Then he went up onto the mountain to pray. Jesus, in his humanity, often was extremely tired and needing refreshment at the end of ministering, at a long day of ministering to people. Have you ever spent time really serving someone? Have you ever really poured your life out and experienced the tiredness, the spiritual tiredness that can come from that? Jesus actually experienced that, needed refreshment with the Father, so he went up onto the mountain to be by himself to pray. He sent the disciples on um, a mission Without him, get to Capernaum. I'll see you there. He was alone, 
The disciples were sailing without Jesus, the Scripture tells us, in the dark and not having a very good time. The sea becomes rough. The Sea of Galilee becomes rough. It's because, there's an explanation for this. The Sea of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. So the winds come out of the southeast, can rush into that valley, to that hollow, and displace the warm air that is sitting on top of the sea. And when you get uh, cold, warm air mixes, you're, maybe you're not meteorologists, but you know what happens. That's, that's what creates storms. When you get a warm air, warm air being displaced by cold air, what happens is violent squalls come up. So anybody who has ever sailed on the Sea of Galilee knows this, expects this, that you can experience sudden storms, sudden violent winds blowing on the Sea of Galilee, creating waves and a dangerous situation. Now, I want you to see something here. I want you to look at verse 17. John tells us that it was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. That it was now dark is loaded with symbolic significance. The sea was something they were afraid of. The sea and storms, dark winds blowing in the dark. It's John is, as he always does, he's writing with rich imagery and he's wanting you to know that there is a mood of discouragement contained in this section. Would you have seen that? That's the flavor of the text. The flavor and the tone is that all is not right. Why? Jesus isn't here. It's dark. It's scary. The disciples are frightened. Then they see Jesus, they're more frightened. This is a frightening time in the disciples' life. Have you ever experienced a frightening time? Have you ever experienced a time where you felt alone? Have you ever experienced any struggle in life? Have you ever passed through a storm of life? Well, yes, you have, and you know then what John is talking about. It was dark. Bruce Milne, as I was reading some of his commentary on this, he gave the most helpful explanation I have ever read for what this symbolizes. What does this symbolize? That it's dark and the disciples are alone. Here is discipleship. Here is discipleship without the awareness. Key word. Here is discipleship without a discerned awareness of the presence of Jesus. Here is discipleship when you're trying to follow Jesus, but you don't feel like He's very close to you. You don't feel like He's near to you. You don't know where He's going. Milne says it would be difficult to find a more telling picture of the church, and I'm telling you guys, this, this is, is so true for what we're experiencing as a church, Brandywine Grace, but the churches, churches all across the nation know this. It's not new to the church, though. This is a telling picture of the church, and I might add a picture of what Jesus can sometime, following Jesus can sometimes feel like. Here it is. Small group of people standing alone, remote from the land where most people live their lives. Seemingly irrelevant, the church, just a little group of people in the boat, seemingly irrelevant to everything that's happening on the shore, everything that's happening on the land, all the great issues confronting the world, tossed about by the winds of secular ideas, secular theories, tossed about. 
tossed about by worldly ideas, tossed about by worldly philosophies, controversy, uncertainty, bickering, and fighting within. I guarantee you this was a stressful moment for the disciples. And I guarantee you when I experience stress, I can sometimes get a little temper. I'll bet you, Peter, we don't get it. But you know Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth. I guarantee you he took leadership in this situation and he probably had some choice things to say because he was a fisherman and he understood the sea better than a lot of them. Not all of them, not better than John, the writer. But I'll bet you he said something. There's, there's a struggle here, a struggle within. Unsure, check this, unsure of where they're coming from. Can't even find, can't even locate their point of departure any longer. Confused about their current whereabouts and no clear destination ahead. Like the disciples, it can sometimes feel like we are straining at the oars. It's the scripture. The scripture tells us they're not sailing any longer. They dropped the sails in that violent storm and then tried to row against it, making hardly any headway. We can estimate that they were, well, John tells us, three or four miles they had rowed. Trying to do our best, but feeling like you're making no headway. Can you relate to that, church? You're trying. You're trying. But, but you look back and it feels like I'm, I'm, fur, I'm back further than I thought I would be. I'm making the effort of, of, of 10 people, but I'm actually losing ground. Can anybody relate to this, or is this just something that I feel sometimes in my Christian wall? The church can relate to this. And here's the most crucial thing. Crucially, no sense that Jesus, their Savior, their Lord, is anywhere to be found. No sense that Jesus is anywhere in sight. Where is Jesus? Church, it was dark. It is dark. Where is Jesus? Matthew tells us he's alone, praying on the mountain. A mountain in the Bible is often a symbol of a place of authority. So here's the picture, guys. The picture is of our Jesus, our Savior, praying in a place of authority as the disciples struggle on the mission that he's given them. It's a picture of how Christ relates to those who are faithfully, sometimes failing, but trying to follow Him. It's a picture of God interceding for us while we, at His direction, are battling the storms of this life. Doesn't that give you hope? It's supposed to give you hope. We're not done yet. This sermon is going to give some people hope. If you are battling in any way in some storm of life, God wants you to know that Jesus is at the right hand of God right now interceding for you. Interceding for you. Praying with you at, on the mountain in that place of authority. He's praying. He's praying for you. He's, he's asking God to help you as you battle the storms of life that he is ruling sovereignly over. So I got four lessons for us today. This is a good one for note takers. Lessons for following Jesus through the storms of life. And they're going to come right from this text. Lessons for following Jesus through the storms of life. Number one, recognize. That following Jesus will lead us, will lead you into difficult storms of life. Oh, I don't like that one. You should have said, no, 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 I don't like that one. Can I go to the point two? First lesson 
for following Jesus through the storms of life is recognizing that it's Jesus who actually leads his followers into storms of life. And I don't like that. You ever realize that some, do you ever have this thought? If I had not decided to follow Jesus, my life would be easier than it is right now. It would be worse right now in a lot of ways too, right? What I'm acknowledging though is that there is challenge in the Christian life. Who's with me? There are times in life where following Jesus seems only to intensify our trouble. The disciples were in trouble because they did what Jesus told them to do. Now, storms can come into your life for two different reasons. You can get a storm in life for not doing what Jesus told you to. See Jonah for details. But believe me when I say, and when the Scriptures say, your choice to follow Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus, can actually, too, lead you into the storms of life. The Christian life, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, and I don't always want to acknowledge, is not an easy one. Jesus doesn't promise us a walk in the park. Jesus doesn't promise us an easy life. He promises to be with us. He promises to never leave us or forsake us, but he doesn't say, come follow me and and life is going to be easy. This is why I have such a vehement dislike for prosperity gospel preaching that tells poor people and people of need and people who are desperate that if they just follow Jesus, that maybe one day they can drive a better car. They could have a little bit more money. They could have a BMW. They won't have miscarriages. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come follow me, and I will lead you into some stormy waves and winds, but I promise I'll never leave you or forsake you. Again, I say, those who decide to follow Jesus and obey him will face some contrary winds in this life. There's no doubt about it. Moses would never have felt rejected by a complaining people. His own people rejected him. I mean, not only, does, not only is he fighting against his enemies, but when he, when he decides to lead his own people on a rescue mission, they turn against him. Moses would never have felt rejected by a complaining people if at the burning bush he had decided not to obey Jehovah. He could have avoided that. He could have decided to live like the prince that he was. No trouble. Just comfort. Daniel could have avoided the lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We haven't talked about them for a while. Maybe in Sunday school. His his friends, Daniel's friends, could have bypassed the fiery furnace if they hadn't decided to be faithful to God. See, you, we, we, we know that they didn't get burned in the fiery furnace, but I don't know what they felt when they were approaching it. They had to step into it. They had to feel it. They thought, you know, if I set my hand on a burner that I think is scalding hot, that's an unnerving experience. Even though I might not be hot when I touch it. Think of how much persecution Paul could have avoided if he had just said no thanks to God's invitation. If Paul disregards the call to go to Macedonia, he could have avoided being a beaten, bloodied victim in the Roman prison. Following Jesus, friends, doesn't always mean acceptance. It can often mean criticism and rejection and pain. But if these people had not decided to follow Jesus, they would have never known the refreshing winds of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They would have never known what it 
feels like to abide in Christ, to know his nearness, to experience his deep love. Those contrary winds that were buffeting them, how about those fresh winds of the Holy Spirit that come to you in the moment where you're feeling embattled? Would you trade it, church? Just think, if you hadn't decided to follow Jesus into difficult places, you would never know the deep abiding presence of the Spirit of God. You wouldn't know the sweet presence and the sweet refreshment that only God can give when we follow Him into the places that He's called us. talking to Andrea, one of my friends. And we were just talking about how we feel like this has been a season where God has been, uh, we've been experiencing God even though it's been a difficult season. And I've told you this before and I'll say it again. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years now and this has been, without fail, the most difficult year of my life. And church, I'm telling you, if the God would allow me, I would get there. I'm, I sit across from people that I love. We look at a situation and we see it differently, but because we see it differently, it's resulted in their deciding not to be part of this church anymore. I want to feel pain. I'm not talking about who's right and who's wrong. I'm talking about pain. They probably feel it. I feel it. And it's directly tied to my decision to be a pastor, to follow Jesus. And my life, I'm convinced, would be easier if I just took a sales job. And everybody that I know who's good at sales say that I would have been a great salesman. Sometimes I'd like to take a stab at that. Maybe I could make a pile of money. Get out from underneath this. I can feel so tired at times, church. What would I rather have? The comforts of this world or the deep abiding presence of Jesus as I follow him even into difficult storms? I said that to somebody, and they were like, wow, it's no brainy. You follow Jesus. Is it? <laughs> Is it? Is it a no-brainer? I don't know. Sometimes, now I know. What I'm saying, though, is it's not as easy a question to answer as sometimes we make it out to be, because you don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes, and I don't know what it's like to walk in your shoes, but what I'm saying in this point is that one of the lessons we must learn is that we must follow Jesus, that recognize that following Jesus will lead us into difficult storms. It's going to lead us into difficult circumstances. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. Though we may not see him, he always sees us. Though we may not see him, he always sees you. Here's the disciples, alone, battling the storm, wondering if they were going to make it to shore. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced a storm, but I'm just trying to tell you right now that a bunch of these guys, John and his brother, uh, James and Peter, these guys, these, I'm telling you, if they walked in here now, they would not be guys that you would mess with. They would not be fearful, flighty guys. They knew what it was like to... They were fishermen. Now, I don't know about the rest of them. There were, maybe some softies were with them. Leave Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Maybe he had soft hands, banker's hands. But Peter didn't. Matthew's just counting the money. He got the lotion on his hands. Peter didn't. When Peter grabbed a hold of you, you felt like you were grabbing a farmer's hand. These guys were experienced sailors, and the Scripture tells us that they were extremely fearful. The storm was raging. The waves were huge. Waves were crashing over the sides. Boats started to crack, filling up with water. When life gets like that, when life begins to, when we begin to experience that experientially, metaphorically, symbolically, we start to question, where 
is Jesus anyway? Where is he? What is this? Feeds the 5,000 and shoves up us, shoves us off in a boat. Hey, see you later, guys. Get in there. Matthew's, Matthew's language is he compelled them to get in the boat. They didn't want to get in the boat. He said, get in the boat, and I'll meet you there. Gave him a mission. Gave him an assignment. Gave him a commission. When life gets hard, when Jesus leads us into those difficult circumstances, we can start to question, where are you, Lord? Where are you? Sometimes that's with pain. It's a cry of the heart. Sometimes it's with anger. Where are you? The disciples probably wondered if Jesus had forgotten about them. Have you ever felt, friends, that Jesus has forgotten you? Not the person sitting next to you, you. Have you ever felt to be a Christian is to feel at times like you have been forgotten? John said it was dark. But Jesus had not forsaken them even though it looked like he had. Could Jesus see them? Could Jesus see them? We don't know. It doesn't say. But here's the question. Does Jesus see you in that storm? Does Jesus see you in this storm of life? Does he see you in this difficult circumstance? I do believe that Jesus saw them. Someone might say, well, oh, there must have been lightning cracking over the, the sea. And they cracked the lightning, and he could see them out there. Maybe. Or he saw them because he's the omniscient one. He knew their struggle. In the dark, things can get obscured. When we feel blinded by circumstance, things get blurry, things get confusing, and our problems can look as if Jesus has forgotten us or lost us, lost sight of us. Maybe he's paying attention to everybody else, but he doesn't seem to be paying any attention to me. It's not true, church. Though we may not see him, we might not discern his presence. His presence is with us all the time. How often, church, you tell me, all the time. How much does he see us? All the time. He never abandons us. He never. Great commission last week. I'll never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. I'll always have my eye on you. He knows. He cares. He will come to our aid. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Wherever we go, Jesus is there. He sees all the details of the situation. When we're going through storms, it's easy to think that He's forgotten us, but He hasn't. He's aware of it all. He knows the Scripture says when a sparrow falls to the ground, so he certainly knows the difficulties that you're going through. Jesus saw the disciples fearful, rowing helplessly, but getting nowhere, and yet he delayed. I'm going to move to the delay as the third point, but I'm going to end with this. You have never, ever, been out of Christ's sight, even though he may have been out of yours. You have never, ever, ever been out of Jesus' view, even though he might be out of yours. Church, friends, let's let that truth comfort us in the storms of life. Number three, third lesson. Third lesson. Wait on the Lord. He's coming. Third lesson for, the, for, for battling through the storms of life. Wait on the Lord. He's 
coming. Finally, the scripture tells us that Jesus came to them. He comes to them after allowing the storm to batter them for a while. That's, that's theologically troubling. Why? Why does Jesus sometimes delay? We can't say for sure. But we're going to hit this question over and over in John because remember Mary and Martha, his closest friends, their brother Lazarus is dying. They sent for Jesus. Jesus, will you come? Will you come and help us? Jesus delays. Lazarus dies. Why? Why does he delay? Why does he operate on a timetable that's different than mine? Perhaps. Perhaps. That Jesus takes us to the very end of ourselves. To the very end of our strength. So that we rely on Him. What else? friends, will cause you to trust in God alone. I'm not talking about trust in name. I'm not talking about just trust checked off. I'm talking about abiding, confidence, trust in God. You know what brings that sometimes? The trials that he allows in our lives. He delays, helps us to see that we're, 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 we're empty apart from him. We can do nothing apart from him. We can't save ourselves. And then at that moment, he shows up. We can't always know why God waits. I don't know why He's making you wait. But I do know this. He's going to come. He's going to come. He's going to meet you. He's going to come for you. Matthew says that Jesus came. John tells us that He came while it was still dark. They set out rowing when it was still dark. They rowed. They hit the storm. They rowed for a while. Hours have passed. They're wondering where Jesus is. Matthew tells us he came during the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning. Do you know when the darkest hour of day is or of night is? you know when it is? It's always right before dawn. That's the darkest hour. So Jesus doesn't come when it's kind of dark. Jesus doesn't come when it's getting darker. Jesus shows up in the fourth watch of the night. He shows up just when you needed him the most is when he shows up. He shows up when it's dark. Jesus came to them in their darkest hour, taking, and I, I'm imagining here a little bit, but Jesus taking the same course that they had taken. They take off. They're in the storm. He comes down off the mountain from praying, and he's got to get to the disciples. How's he going to get there? He steps on the water and walks following the same course that the boat has taken. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Before Jesus was seen walking on the water, we picture it in our minds. What do you picture? I picture like this serene, calm lake, the kind you like to water ski on. He's just walking. That's not what he was walking on, though, because the disciples who are fishermen are extremely afraid of the storm that's taking place. So Jesus is walking the, the stormy waves following the course that the boat has taken are the waves that he's walking on in his humanity walking through the stormy waves as the pavement for his feet. Why? Why? Because Jesus understands our experience. Jesus understands what it feels like to be you. Jesus understands what it, he's experienced, what you've experienced. He's experienced temptation in every way without sin. He's walked where you have walked. He's taken the same course that the boat is taking. He, we have a sympathetic high priest who's been where we have been, who's walked where we have walked, and he comes to us when we feel like we're so desperately alone, we've run out of strength, and he arrives. He will never abandon us. Haven't you experienced this just when you felt like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do? And then the check comes. Haven't you experienced this? I, I don't know what I'm going to say. 
I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I don't know what's going to happen. And the doorbell rings. I don't know what's going to happen. And the email comes into the inbox. I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And a note arrives. I don't know. What is it for you? Don't you? If you've been following Jesus at all, you've had these moments where just when I thought, I don't know what I was going to do, Jesus comes through. Hasn't he come through, church? Hasn't he come through just when you needed him? Hasn't he come through, church? Yes, he has come through. He will come through. He promises to come through. If you haven't experienced the real Jesus in that real way, you might not be following the real Jesus because that's what he's doing for his people. You may know Christ, but you will never know him deeply until he comes to you in the midst of your storm. Help is on the way long before you see it. Got to believe it. Fourth lesson. Fourth lesson. Following Jesus through the storms of life. Fourth lesson. I'm going a little bit longer this morning. Invite him into the boat of your life. That's the fourth lesson. Invite him into the boat of your life. Now you might be saying, where, where do you get that? Well, unfortunately, it appears that when Jesus does arrive, they actually get more fearful. So Jesus shows up. You're, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? Then he shows up. Whoa, whoa, now go away, Jesus. Don't show up that way, Jesus. You can only show up the way I want you to show up. He comforts them with a word, and the word is I am. It is I. We're going to see that next week. I am the bread of life. He's going to explain the miracle that just happened. But he comforts them with a word. He says, it's me. Don't be afraid. The fear that the storm caused was nothing, not even noteworthy, because John doesn't even tell us about the storm that they were in. What he does tell them is that they got really fearful when Jesus came walking on the water and tried to get into the boat with them. Jesus is trying to get into the boat of your life, and you're like, hold on. Hold. Wait there. I've already got enough trouble without you, Jesus. Sometimes we can be like the disciples, terrified of the help that's coming to them in Jesus. The strange perversity of our hearts can cause us to push God away when he actually comes into the storms of our life. That's, you, you know this too. I'm speaking about things you know. If you've been following Jesus, you know that your heart is so perverse that when he finally comes, you would say, I, I, I can't deal with you right now, Jesus. The help that he sends wasn't the help that you wanted. Maybe because he comes to us in ways we don't expect. Maybe he comes to us in ways that we reject. Maybe his help is coming to us through someone we didn't expect. Oh, Lord, send your help, but not through them. Maybe he's sending help through someone you've rejected. Maybe he's sending help in a way that you cannot even conceive. We must guard, church, against rejecting what God is trying to do for us, whether it's for our fear, our pride, our arrogance, our ignorance. Is God trying to help you in the storm of your life right now, but what you're realizing is you're actually pushing Him away? We must invite Him into the boat of our lives. Because what happens when the disciples invite Him into the boat of our lives. We're going to look at that because there's more even there. It's not just that the storm goes away. It's a, it's a blow-your-mind detail here. We must invite him into the boat of our lives. We must invite him, church, into the storms of life. Following Christ is going to bring us into storms. It's inevitable. It's a promise. But it's comforting to know that he sees us. What kinds of storms are you facing? Invite him into the boat. Financial trouble? Invite him into the boat. Insecurity, invite him into the boat. Relational conflict, invite him into the boat. 
occupational uncertainty? Invite him into the boat. Sin struggle? Invite him into your boat. Depression? Invite him into your boat. Some form of dilemma? Invite him into your boat. Some uncertainty? Invite him into your boat. Who's going to do it? You were clapping a minute ago. Who's going to invite him into the boat of our lives? Where else will we go? Peter's going to say that. Peter, everybody's going to reject Jesus here in a couple verses. All those people that got the fat bellies, they're going to reject him. And then Jesus is going to say, will you reject me too? And then Peter's going to say, where would I go? Is that you? Where would I go, Jesus? Get in the boat. I got nothing better. <laughs> Get in the boat and help me. Get in the boat and rescue me. Now look at how this section ends. And then we will be done. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Is that another miracle? No. Maybe it was. Maybe it was just another miracle. The boat just a hydroplane. I have, a, I have something else I want to imagine with you. When you need something, when you are desperate, and God comes through, the experience of the joy we have in Christ makes time fly by so that that arduous journey of rowing and I can't get anywhere, now I'm in Christ and I'm experiencing Christ. Where did all the time go? Time flies when you're having fun, they say. Time flies when you're with the person you love most. Haven't you ever experienced that? Time flies when we're in the presence of Jesus. When we're experiencing His wonderful, deep, abiding presence. I think the disciples were so caught up in the worship of Jesus that time ceased and suddenly they found themselves on the shore. He knows, He sees, He cares, He's coming. Invite Him in and see once again how wonderful He is. Those are lessons for helping us battle through the storms of life. Amen. Thanks for giving your long attention.